0: With a career covering nearly two decades, Mining International partners with new and junior miners and larger predominant players in the market. With no further ado, here is your host, Rob Tyson. Just before we start the podcast, we want to make you aware of the upcoming Mines & Money London event, which is back in person on the 1st and 2nd of December at the Business Design Centre. This is Europe's largest mining investment event and brings investors and mining corporates together to connect, learn and do business. And you don't want to miss the mining pitch battles. Investors can claim complimentary tickets and other attendees can get 10% off with a discount code Deep 10 all in capital letters, when registering at minesandmoney.com. So get your tickets now and we will hopefully see you there. And now back to the podcast. Hi, mining community. Welcome back to another episode of the Dig Deep, the mining podcast. And today's guest is Alex Alex Atkins, who is a mine engineer by background and now holds a number of non-executive directorship positions. Um, We met a few years ago at a mining conference in Melbourne, um, and I know how passionate she is about mining. Um, And he's on the podcast to talk about her passions, which are ESG, diversity and inclusion, and digital transformation. So that's welcome, Alex, to the podcast. How are you doing, Alex? Hello, Rob. Thanks very much for having me. No, and I appreciate your time. Um, so wondered if you can give our audience uh, an overview, um, a little bit about your background. Um, obviously, you've been in the mining industry for for quite a few years. So I just was wondering if you can run through run through your career. Um, obviously, you started off as a mine engineer, um, and now obviously hold a number of um non-executive director role. So I just wanted give, to give our audience an overview of your uh, background.
1: Yeah, well, they can all head to LinkedIn, so I won't bore them with all the details, but roughly you could say my career has been broken up into two to three phases. Um, so the first one being on-site, probably about 15 years of operational experience as a multidisciplinary and, you know, geologist, mining engineer, energy, technical engineer, all in one. Got my first-class mine manager's tickets. Um, and then I had my kids. So at that point, then I was um, uh, in a position where I had to reinvent myself. So the second half of my career sort of moves into regulation, uh, consulting, um, and um, developing the skill sets that I needed to be able to get on boards, um, such as an MBA in finance, bit of time in big forwards, uh, startup founder, and an um, on the c-suite of another startup uh hanging around with startups um that was the only way i could get c-suite experience as a mother uh you know couldn't be a c-suite of a big mining company um yep and that's pretty much it so it's been a bit of a journey of exploring mining from as many points of view as possible to understand it as well as i can um, so that hopefully i can inject a bit of um my creativity my values and what i believe in uh, what i think mining should look like and and uh, that's what the Ned roles are all about is how do I inject a little bit of, um, I guess, my, my female version of, uh, of what money should look like
0: yeah. into the industry. <laughs> um, you mentioned um, just in your introduction there about reinventing yourself, um, obviously going from, I, t- I take it from a, a site-based role into the corporate world and obviously having, having a family. How did you find that transition period Um, And is there, I suppose, is there any advice that you can give anyone um, that is potentially in that position or could be in that position shortly? Mm.
1: Well, when that happened to me, when I did that transition, it happened rather suddenly um, because, well, I was pregnant with my first child and uh, I got so fat, basically. (laughs) And I was working underground, I looked like a jumbo operator, had a big stomach hanging out of my um, overalls. And um, it got to the point where I was basically told it's time to go. (laughs) And um, and I said, oh, can I come back after the baby? You know, I'll do part-time. Maybe we can do something remote uh, because the internet was out by then. You know, I could do a lot on software. And I was told, no, in your role you have to be on site. And so basically it was uh, like a guillotine came down on my career and just chopped it off. Um, and I was like a headless chook, really. So um, I, I just pivoted. Um, I sort of used the skill set that I had um, and just used it somewhere else, which would be family friendly, flexible, on the coast, in a town sort of thing, um, which was what I did. And then um, I actually, uh, because that was outside of mining, it was in civil construction, I had to find a way to come back to mining. And because I knew that I was going to make the most money and have the most um, meaningful life, um, where I was going to bring about, hopefully, a positive change about something I really care about. So I slowly found my way back into the mining industry through consulting, like AMC Consultants, Op and um, and during the downturn. Um, the first one after GFC, I actually went into state government as a district inspector of mines, thinking that would be a good insurance policy for my income protection. and um, But also it tapped into my values around not killing anyone and trying to make the industry better. So, um, and, and then um, after three years there, I really didn't want to be there. So I'm a little bit like um, one of those... Uh, those pinball machines, you know, like I'm going ding, ding, ding. That was my career. Uh, Particularly once I had kids, I was ding, ding, dinging all over the place trying to figure out um, what are all the points of view? Um, You know, what drives everybody? What does it all mean? Um, How does the system work? And um, so eventually I ended up um, forming my own business and I, I worked out a little business model of me, that tapped into my values and my strengths, what I was good at and what I thought were the needs in the industry at the time, which is kind of a precursor to ESG and started to develop some um, offerings around that. So I had agency over my life. So so it was all a big experiment um, post-children. I had nobody to look to to give me any guidance because um, I'm in that first wave of STEM women. Uh, before me, there weren't really any Female underground mining engineers, my kind of experience. Who'd had children and were raising them themselves and keeping their career going. Um, so yeah, it was all just a big, um, I guess, a pioneering, trailblazing kind of career where you find your own path, just beat through the jungle.
0: Yeah, I mean, I suppose you. I suppose that was hard to take when they said that you couldn't go back to site. Um, so did you? Did obviously you said you mentioned that you didn't. have you, couldn't speak to anyone. How, how were you feeling at that time? And um, and I suppose has the industry improved if people were in that situation now?
1: Yeah, I think it has improved now because yeah. um, I think the legislation, people are more aware of their obligations. Um, you know, who are giving advice to employees uh, at the time? The person giving me advice in the business probably. Uh, either they weren't aware of their obligations and I wasn't in a, in a position to challenge or uh, it just I don't know what it was. It's very strange. But it was in 2003. So it's not all that long ago. Yeah. Um, so I didn't even get maternity leave um, just a chop off. Um, so today I think a lot of women in the industry are still getting access to maternity leave. And the options for um, flexible work if they want to return. Um, And I think virtual work is much more commonplace thanks to COVID. Uh, There should be no troubles now with uh, businesses being able to accommodate women, um, you know, going back to part-time and working from home a lot and and balancing um, their career and their their,
0: um, children. Yeah, certainly. Um so obviously you're passionate about ESG diversity and inclusion digital transformation. I wonder you can give us an overview of those subjects um and what what and some of the work that you've been doing um over the last few years or so.
1: Yeah. So starting with ESG, environmental, social, governance. I guess in the past it's been called other things like corporate social responsibility or social license to operate. Um, and it's actually become pretty mainstream now. Um, thanks really to BlackRock. I think um, Larry Fink writing to CEOs every year and really reinforcing the message that this is not going away, and a lot of um you know investment banks and um, exchange traded funds being formed. Dow Jones Sustainability Index being an example. Um, which shows that the investment community is embracing it. Um, and I'd like to think actually a part of that is uh women's money because a lot of these funds are actually super funds and pension funds. It could be teachers and nurses. So, um, you know, if the members are um, telling the management of the fund what they want them to invest in, they'll be saying, and what they don't want them to invest in, they'll be saying, well, we don't want anything. It's going to wreck the environment. That's going to have slavery or any kind of, you know, social justice issues. So I think that ESG has been born initially out of that and also it's been reinforced, it's gained momentum from things happening like, the tailings dam to Marco and Remedino really accelerated the pace that it came on, um, and also the Ducan Gorge um, incident in Western Australia, which happened recently with Rio Tinto. You know, all of these examples are large multinational mining companies and we expect really high standards from them, and we uh, we expect them to have strong governance systems in place. And for these things to happen inside those businesses, it, it just basically reinforced to the general community that something else had to be put in place um, to encourage uh, thinking more broadly, not just about commercial, you know, financial um, and straight legal compliance issues, but also to put a little bit more weighting onto what does the community want and value and need, uh, you know, things like that. So um, for me, the part of the issue that I'm most passionate about is preventing fatalities and mining disasters. Um, Because not only do they destroy a good ore body, which is really hard to find anyway, and and to find one that's economically viable. um, So it's a sacrilege to destroy one or to destroy parts of it. Um, And also, I'm, you know, I'm pretty ashamed. I have been ashamed in the past when there's been a a bad mining accident. And, um, you know, it could be something that say at the site that I worked at, we were doing the same thing that another site was doing and it killed people there. And then I've got to manage that risk, uh, keep the mine going. But I also feel a little shame when I go home to my family on my breaks and uh, see it's on the news. And so, you know, it'd be really good to um, design that stuff out of mining altogether. Uh, You know, how can we reinvent mining in a better way? Um, So it sort of ties in really nicely with the fourth industrial revolution because I think we can really get... People out of the line of fire, uh, thanks to automation and remote operations centers and the use of AI and ML to get rid of repetitive, boring tasks as much as possible, and also to holistically join up the whole value chain and to get uh, different software packages and operational technology all talking to one another um, so that we've actually got less rework, less duplication and contradiction, less waste, um, just a more efficient, uh, iterative, continuously optimizing and refining process. So um, digital transformation of mine is very exciting for that reason and because hopefully it will help us solve a lot of our wicked problems that we've had for a long time where we just keep repeatedly, uh, you know, killing people and having accidents. So um, that's that's what I'm passionate about. And I know that diversity and inclusion um, is a part of this, um, bringing other voices to the table. Uh, you can't have the same people um, at the table for this new world. You, you can have some of them, but you need to bring in some fresh um, perspectives. Um, and, you know, there's been a lot of research done by McKinsey's, uh, World Economic Forum, even Boston Consulting Group um, on the benefits of diversity at the table. Make much better decisions, manage your risk better. Um, it's a more psychologically safe environment when you have diversity, especially if it's proper, inclusive, respectful diversity. Um, people will bring up issues sooner and more honestly, you know, more openly, and you'll be able to get on top of problems. Um and really know what, what's going on inside the organisation. So um it's it's just a good,
0: it can't hurt, you know, it's all good. Um what strategies did you uh, use to gain traction in Frozen. the industry? Sorry? Oh there you are. <laughs> you froze. <laughs> oh did I. <laughs> um what strategies did uh, did you use to gain traction in the industry with regards to making mining better? Yeah, um, well,
1: I suppose it all starts with making it really obvious to everybody that it's a part of my life purpose um, so that they know what I'm doing is driven uh, by that and that it comes from a good place. It's not about me and it's not about my um, ego or wanting to be rich and famous or anything like that, which in Australia, you know, if, you're, if you've if you got that kind of a motivation, you're likely to get shot down pretty quickly. So, yeah. Um, you know, first and foremost, you've got to actually know what your life purpose is, and really project that out consistently, so people know who you are and what you're all about. That earns you trust, and um, and then from that point, then you can uh, use that trust uh, to influence people. So what I, what I did was also I pivoted off of and leveraged off of what I'd already done. So that made me more valuable, um, rather than you know a lot of women they hit a point in their career where they just they give up. Um, it's all too hard. Uh, they're not making progress. They're not learning. They're not growing. So they just go and do something else. Could be teaching, could be nursing, could be law. Um, and I think that's a great shame. Uh, what, what they should do is look at themselves okay, what is it about me that's valuable, rare? Um, and then, so I'm thinking of friend here inimitable, which means hard to copy and non substitutable. And think about those things that are about you um, that are hard to copy and valuable, and just keep building off of those and thinking about what are the problems uh, in the industry that do need to be solved, that you'll be paid for. That's that's my life purpose. So, so I use my life purpose and I use what was rare about me and valuable about me um, to influence others. It comes from a position of um, experience and credibility. Um, so that's really important. And another thing is to be commercial in your mindset. So... Um, if you sound too airy-fairy vague or if you sound like you're coming from, say, really a really strongly left-wing position, uh, you're going to turn off people who are detail-oriented, really business-driven, uh, maybe a bit more right-wing than you, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, really business-like uh, people, C-suite, uh, boards, um, investment bankers, all of those kinds of people They want to hear you talking about um, the business model. They want to hear you talking about revenue, the multiples, what's the impact of what you're doing on potential multiple re-rate. You know, that's the sort of language that they want to hear mixed in with, um, that it's also got a social purpose. It's good for everyone. Um, So if you can speak like that, if you understand commercially what are the impacts of what you're suggesting, you're more likely to get um, a hearing um and, and, I, and like I said before to be consistent and and if you're consistent and it's pretty obvious who you are and what you're all about you're going to earn trust um there'll be some people that don't like what you have to say um and there'll be some people that do and the ones that do will be the ones that um you know tap you on the shoulder and ask you to join them uh with whatever it is that they're doing and that's where you want to be
0: what are your sort of current challenges uh, that you're facing at the moment with ESG, diversity and inclusion and digital transformation?
1: So in terms of challenges, I guess one is um, in the past, it's been that I think I've been too far ahead of everybody um, and, and my timing was was wrong. <laughs> and if you're too far ahead and your timing's are wrong, uh, people aren't ready to hear your message and you're not going to get traction. You're going to spin your wheels and uh, I've done a lot of that. Um, so, this, you know, if you're a part of a change, you really do need to be very patient. Um, and another thing is um, actually none of these things are easy to do and um, they're actually going to need new people coming into the industry to help us do it. Um, so, you know, that challenge also exists um, around ESG, around digital transformation and diversity and inclusion. How, how do you quickly bring in a whole new um, cohort of people and in an industry which is known for its riskiness uh, and is known for its tightness in terms of connectivity, you know, people knowing one another and trusting one another and feeling like they can only work with people they know and trust because it's risky. Um, so how do you bring in these fresh people with these new capabilities that we need um, when you have this overlay, this cultural overlay of needing to know you already and trust you already? I think that's one of the biggest challenges we face
0: yeah, uh, what kind of people and what kind of skill sets do you think uh, these people need to have that are going to come into the industry?
1: Um, well, it's going to be broad. I mean, if you have a look, um, I've got a couple of books here. Just pick them up. Um, can you see these?
0: Yeah.
1: I'm not holding them up very well. Anyway, one is called Range, which is by a guy. Can you see that?
0: Uh, if you move it up a bit, I can see. What, I can <laughs> uh, see one of the books. They're not coming through properly.
1: Yeah, anyway, I'll give you photos of the books. One's called Range and one's called Working Backwards. And and both of these books are really great. Um, They both kind of talk about the type of people who will lead this new world that we're moving into because we are actually at an inflection point. We're at a perfect storm at the moment, so many things changing. Um, And I won't go into that because I think we already, we all know what they are. Um, But what they talk about is, um, well, working backwards, they talk about um, single-threaded leaders, which are very rare people who have got deep domain capability, you know, grounding in something, very deep domain, but they also understand uh, the big picture. They can uh, synthesise and integrate, you know, the full um, value chain, say, or what the whole industry that you're talking about. They understand the commercial realities of it. Um, and in Range, this book is by David Epstein, Epstein and he talks about people who are high performers or breakthrough people, people who bring about really transformative change, often come from a career that's really strange. <laughs> it's, uh, they've been everywhere, done all sorts of stuff um, and they look like, you know, if you look at the beginning of their careers, they actually look like a, a failure. But, um, but towards the end of their careers when they had these breakthrough um, achievements, um, it's all because of what they went through beforehand and the knowledge that they brought about so that they could think a bit differently to someone who's done pretty much the same thing their whole career for the same industry. That's called um, cognitive entrenchment and these people have got cognitive flexibility. So there's a lot um, in that, the massive Um, cultural change in our industry where we embrace people who are different, who've done a lot of different things um, and don't just stick to more of us, you know, more mining people. We've got to let these different people in. Um, So and also with the digital transformation, I'm sure you've done some podcasts on this before and everybody will be aware of all these terms, artificial intelligence, machine learning, data science, um, automation, robotics, virtual reality and augmented reality, APIs, people who can join things up. So we've got a lot of point solutions at the moment and none of them are joined up. How do we join them up to get this integrated platform? Um, So there's there's a lot of work that can be done by people who have absolutely no mining background. They could come from Amazon, they could come from Google, or um, they could come from a little startup. Um, They'll come from all over the place, gamers even. They might not even have a degree. (laughs) So... We're going to be letting the geeks in and um, these guys are going to hopefully work with us. We're going to need people who can act as a bridge, uh, translator, negotiator, um, peacekeeper uh, to help the two worlds communicate with each other, understand one another, have patience with one another uh, over time to develop what we need to create. And it's going to be um, a period of increased risk actually for everybody But those who get through it will actually be the new winners of this new world. If you don't do it, you're finished.
0: Yeah. Um, Something I just thought about, if we're looking to bring in um, people from different industries, like, say, the tech industry, how can we attract them to the mining industry? With a lot of people outside of mining probably have a little bit of a negative view of of the mining industry. So how can we attract those type Mm -hmm. of tech people into the mining industry?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. I've got, you know, a 15 and an 18-year-old and, and um, they think mining is dirty. And, you know, um, but I think what it is is to tap into their imagination and, and you know, they're all very passionate about social justice, sustainability, climate change um, and space. So we just need to tap into that. And, you know, this new world is going to be uh, a better version of mining where we do actually do a better job on those fronts. Um, and the digital transformation of mining will enable us to, um, you know, send some machinery into space and mine it from here on Earth. Uh, So that's the future. That's exciting. I mean, who doesn't love Elon Musk? I'm sorry, I love Elon Musk. So uh, it's so inspirational. That's what's going to get the kids to come and join us. So we have to really um, authentically be having a go at this.
0: Yeah, no, certainly. Um, (coughs) I just want to move on to more of your career now um what listed boards are you currently serving on at the moment and how how did you get those positions on those boards Mm. and the reason why I ask that is I I do get a lot of um I do get obviously being in recruitment I do get a lot of candidates asking me if I get any opportunities board opportunities um come up if they can uh if they can if I can let them know so yeah just what I'm curious as to how you actually got those positions
1: Mm. Yep, so I've got three paid board roles that are listed companies and one that's not, it's a not-for-profit, that's IWIM in London. Um, the three paid ones, I've got Parenti, which is a global mining contracting company. It's Ausdral and Barminko and a few others. Um, I've got um, Strandline Resources, which is a mine developer, soon to be producer, hopefully, in about a year. Uh, and we've got um, a METS company called Aquarian, and they're ex-shot firers from Orica, and uh, they're developing some lovely new technology, which kind of is an adjacency service around auto- autonomous drills and how do we get people off the shot, basically. Um, so those three companies, every single one of them, they came to me. That's good so to this, It is, isn't it? So a lot of it is to do with, well, part of it is uh, people who know you. So like Parenti was my first one, which was Ausdrill at the time before we acquired Barminco, Um, the person that approached me has known me since I was 21 and uh, has been a bit of a coach and mentor at various stages of my career. Um, And he contacted me just when they had a pain point and a need and they needed a woman from mining to join the board before a big transaction, someone they could trust. And I was just a lucky person who happened to be ready to go right when they needed someone um so there was a, a what do they call it a preparation a bit of preparation and a bit of luck there and then the other ones were basically you know I've already been on the prenty board for over three years and I think after a while people just go well Alex is ready she's cooked um so we'll we'll grab her we need a lady on our board we haven't had one before um we're getting uh We're getting traction. This is what strandlining went through. Suddenly get traction, suddenly to go into construction and then production and we need somebody with that kind of a background. Plus, um, you know, the share market uh, investors expect to see some diversity in the leadership of the organisation. And Aquarian was about to list. Um, So we went through that whole process of an IPO and they wanted to have a woman there from the beginning. And I'm just lucky to be the one that they tapped to come and join them. And it's a bit of a, it's, um, it's a wonderful place to be, to have people come and ask you. Uh, it's where you want to be because there's so much trust um, that's needed to play in this space. Because um, I'm very rigid me. I'm not trying to be anybody I'm not. And uh, so if someone asks me to join their board, it means that they're happy to have me being me, authentically me, and saying what I really think. And You don't want to join a board if you can't do that because you take a lot of risks. Um, to be on a board um, it could uh, destroy your career, could take your house. So you want to be there authentically you. So that means people who want you for who you are is really yeah. important. Uh,
0: what advice would you give anyone that that is in a position to potentially go onto a board? Um, obviously you mentioned um, obviously your first board position was through someone that you knew. So obviously that was built up over a period of time. Um. What other advice would you say you could give people that are looking to get onto boards? What, is there anything they should be doing?
1: So I guess um, some of the things that I did, I did a lot for nothing for a long time, a lot of volunteering, a lot of giving back, lots of not-for-profits, um, my professional associations on lots of committees, writing papers and articles, speaking at conferences, podcasting, um, helping others, mentoring people. All of these things um, give you social capital as well, um, and and LinkedIn for me has been really powerful. It's like a free TV channel. Um, it's it's a funny one because some people tell me I should be off of social media now, but I, I can't get off of it because um, it's my connection to the outside world all over the world, and and I get to project who I am uh, and what I care about, and um, over time, you know, it helps build your brand. So. So if people know who they are and what they care about and want to build their brand, they should do it without fear um, on LinkedIn. And um, so those are the two key things, I think. You're doing a lot of volunteering and giving back to the community and to the to the sector they're in and um, building their brand and making sure that's really clear to people what they're here to do and what they want to do. And have um, coffees now and again, but don't do too many because they can really eat up your time and can waste time, but you definitely have. Um, strategic coffees with people who you think can help you, particularly people who you think will appreciate you for being authentically you. Don't go approaching anybody that will uh, only have you as a token female or a token diversity person. You want to be there for who you are and be, have courage to be uh, authentic.
0: Yeah. Now, that's um, great, some great valid points there, definitely. Um, if you could um, pick up your next ball roll, um, what would that be, and why?
1: Hmm. So I'm really lucky. I get advice from all sorts of people, and um, I think that the position I'm in right now is that I'd really like to um, cement uh, what I've learned, um, particularly with Parenti, um, uh, with a on the client side, with a mine mining company that owns the assets through the full value chain, because that's an environment where I can add a lot of value with my background um, and help them with ESG and the digital transformation of that full value chain. Um, it's really hard for contractors to do that. Um, we're, we're having a crack at it, but you only have uh, access to a certain window, whereas the mining companies, the only assets have access to everything from exploration drilling right through to selling the product. So um, I would really love that opportunity.
0: Um- what do you enjoy about working on boards and what's the hardest or even most challenging thing um, you do whilst, whilst working on a board?
1: What I love about boards is that it feels like entrepreneurialism. Some people will be really surprised about this because you think of directors as being these very conservative, stiff up lip type people. And actually, I think you have to be entrepreneurial because um, you have to be commercial and strategic You have to take measured measured risks. You have to back yourself, back the team. Um, Sometimes, more often, you have to invest your own money in the company. Uh, You have to have skin in the game because the shareholders expect it. Um, And you have to have a diversified portfolio of roles because one board role is not really enough to live on. And also, uh, you're not the best director you can be. I think if you've got a few, you can kind of cross-pollinate a little bit across them and spread your value. Um, And on boards, you've got to be comfortable with um, ambiguity and uncertainty because you never know what's going to happen tomorrow. Uh, So you've got to be prepared to tolerate that. Um, And also you have to be um, the sort of person that enjoys horizon scanning, you know, constantly reading lots of material and keeping an eye on several, you know, thinking thinking of all the sources of information you have in your life as circles, just um, keeping your eye on all of them. Uh, to look out for emerging risks and potential blind spots, so that you can get on top of those early. Um, and you have to be available. You have to be really committed um, and um, always be available, or when, whenever you're needed. Um, so, so that's what that's why I think it's a lot like entrepreneurialism. And I really love it also because you get um, access to things that you probably otherwise maybe not, might not like M and A experience and IPO experience, which has been. Uh, absolutely extraordinary. And I just love it. Um, It's all a privilege. The whole lot of it is a massive privilege. So how could you not love it? I mean, yes, there's risk and liability, but it is absolutely amazing to be a part of it. The hardest part of it is not to be able to do the doing. That is hard, especially, it's not so bad for me, but I would imagine it'd be really hard for someone who's been a CEO of a big mining company where they're used to for a long time telling everyone what to do. Um, And I understand that is one of the hardest things for them to to learn to stop doing (laughs) (laughs) when you get on a board. So you're an overseer, you're a challenger, and you're a supporter. You've got to be noses in, hands out. Show me, don't tell me. Ask great questions. Listen hard. Don't meddle in management. You have to be patient, and you have to be able to succinctly make your point. Um, and you have to um, time your contributions well for impact. So that's all developing gravitas, which I'm still working on. It's it's a constant um, process of
0: trying to get better. And concluding, um, how should the mining uh, or sh- how should mine be be uh, be better prepared with ESG, diversity and inclusion, and digital uh, transformation um, moving through the next decade? What what do you see as some of the main points that companies should be focusing on? So
1: I think that I've written two main points in my notes here. So one is uh, to start with the diverse views, which we've already talked about the benefits of diversity at the table. If you've got diverse views right through the whole organisation, from the frontline through the C-suite to the board, you're more likely uh, to pick up on all the signs and signals and horizon scanning and the um, you know know what your blind spots are, know where the opportunities are, challenge your thinking and come up hopefully with the best uh, solutions to your problems. And you'll be aware of of where your thinking is is flawed if you have a psychologically safe environment where it's safe to bring that up. So that that means that hopefully you'll be able to preserve your social licence to operate a lot better. Um, And also you have to have a strong outwardly facing um, interface with the rest of the world where, you know, there's a fair bit of um, engagement. So, you know, two-way engagement, not just pushing information out, but actually receiving information as well. And that way you'll have a better feel for what are the, the needs and the wants of um, of the innovation ecosystem that you're going to be tapping into, as well as the community. What do they want? What do they value? Um, so, you know, digital transformation of mining, it's basically about joining up myriads of uh, of point solutions. You can't own all of that, you can't do MA on, on everything in the world to join it all up. So you're going to have to collaborate and uh, tap in, plug and play with a lot of different things. So, so being outwardly facing and engaging with that is going to be really important going forward as well. And if you can do all of that, have a diverse team and an outwardly facing organization, then it'll all be self-reinforcing what they call a flywheel effect at Amazon, which is it'll be like compound interest. You'll get better and better and you'll get faster and faster and more and more valuable.
0: Alex, really appreciate your time. There's a lot of, um, lot of things to take away from, from, this, uh, from the content that you provided and hopefully a lot of our listeners um, can take a lot of that on board. If any of them want to reach out to you if they've got any questions or perhaps any mining companies may be looking at some uh, um, uh, being on some more non-director, non-directors, um I wondered if um how, how can I go about contacting you? Yeah, but I'm
1: absolutely available. You can get me through LinkedIn uh or on my email address, alex.atkins at bigpond.com.
0: Okay, oh, I appreciate your time and um really thank you for time for take, taking the time to uh, for, uh do this podcast. Um and I like I said, I think those that are listening um will get a lot of um a lot of benefit from that. And those that are listening appreciate if you can um, pass this um pass this podcast on to um, others in the industry because I'm certainly, there's a lot of good content there and I think a lot of people will learn something from it. So appreciate all your um, support. Keep sharing um, the podcast. Um, If you're watching on the YouTube channel, appreciate if You can share and like uh, below. Um, So it helps with obviously the algorithms and uh, more people can get access to this uh, content. Thank you again, Alex. Really appreciate your time.